Hello and welcome to There Will Be Spoilers. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And of course, if you're joining us, you're probably a returning listener. You know that we are rapidly making our way through the AFI Top 100 list of films. This is episode 46, number 54 on the list, which means we are almost halfway through. Almost. It's flying by, Ethan. Is it, though? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we watched 1970s M.A.S.H. M.A.S.H. Which, I don't know about you, but it's a film I hadn't seen. Now, I had never seen the film, but I have seen probably hundreds of episodes of the television show. I am in the same boat that you are, which makes this film somewhat uncanny, because it is a reflection of that TV show, being that it is the progenitor of that TV show. But enough of that, Ethan. Why don't we get to a plot synopsis? So, MASH is the story of the 4077th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital in South Korea. At the start of the film, tricksters Hawkeye and Duke arrive to the camp to serve as surgeons. Though they are irreverent and often break the rules, they prove to be talented in the operating room. Other characters in the 4077th include Radar, who takes care of C.O. Blake, who wishes just to fish, uh, the dentist they call the Painless Pole, the Timid Chaplain, um, and the initial roommate and incompetent surgeon, Frank Burns. I- initial roommate of Hawkeye and Duke, that is. However, Hawkeye and Duke do their best to get rid of Frank and replace him in their tent with Trapper John, another new surgeon who shares their irreverent nature. Uh, Margaret Houlihan arrives shortly after the other new surgeons as head nurse and immediately sides with Frank. The two begin a romantic relationship, and while the two are having sex, Radar helps Hawkeye, Duke, and Trapper John sneak a microphone into the tent. They broadcast the sound of the two, um, including when Houlihan exclaims that she has hot lips. Hawkeye and Frank get into a fight the next day, and Frank is removed for a psych eval. Then, the men pull a prank on Hot Lips and expose her while she's showering to the whole camp. Later, the dentist, Painless, uh, fears that he has become gay due to temporary impotence and decides to kill himself. The men throw a Last Supper-style party for him and convince him to take a black capsule to die. Secretly, they also convince one of the women who is leaving the next day to spend the night with him. Her presence cures his impotence and returns painless to normal. Of course, the black capsule is nothing. Trapper and Hawkeye later are sent to Japan to perform surgery on a congressman's son. And while there, they also perform surgery on a Japanese baby and play as much golf as possible when they're threatened with disciplinary action they blackmail the current co by drugging him and taking photos of him in bed with a sex worker the film then ends with a large football game between the soldiers of mash and the 325th evac hospital several thousand dollars are bet on the game and hawkeye duke and trapper john enlist spear chucker jones a former nfl player turned surgeon to join the team in the second half after they have upped the bet using his help and other nefarious means the soldiers of mash win the game and the money shortly after hawkeye and duke are issued their discharges and leave camp in the same stolen jeep they arrived in you mentioned that painless is 
contemplating suicide, eventually decides to go ahead, go through with it, does the black capsule. Now, Hawkeye doesn't convince one of the nurses to spend the night with him. He sort of misleads her into oh, yeah. putting her into a situation where she is guilted to sleep with it. But it's okay because she's happy about, I guess, the fantastic sex she had with the most well-equipped dentist in the Far East the next morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess we can just put it right out there. This film is not great. I would say it's beyond not great. I would say it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's a pretty sexist film, unfortunately. And I guess some of that we can chalk up to the 70s. We could also maybe chalk up some of it to it being set in the 50s. But that's kind of lazy. Um, it's it's the prank they pull on, on Houlihan uh, by exposing her in the shower is, is not, I mean, that's really not a prank. Well, they had a bet that they wanted to find out if she was a natural blonde or not. And so, of right. course, aren't they entitled to settling their bet? Because money's on the line, Ethan. Money is on the line. I guess you're right. What was I saying? What was I thinking? Right. Um, yeah, it, it it's not it's not great to women in this film. It's This is really a boy's film. And it's it, it does get uncomfortable at times to see the film revel in that fact. Well, I think part of that reveling is part of its satire or it's farce but when you hear trapper john say something like the sultry bitch with the fire in her eyes i want her he comes in he's the king of surgery he wants sex he wants that one right so you have all these terrible things going down yeah and it's hard to take it as simple satire and i don't know i it may be uncomfortable throughout the film I definitely think it's intentional, but I don't think that makes it any better for it. No, and I mean, you know, I think we're kind of hypervigilant to that sort of thing due to our current cultural moment with Me Too and Time's Up and all of those things that are uh, sort of swirling around right now and happening. Um, so to see the kind of uh, what we would call sexual harassment now going on in this movie, you know, it's it can be tough to watch at times well i'll also say this ethan that the sexual harassment doesn't limit itself to the actual film during the production there are some things that we could call sexual misconduct sexual harassment or whatever political correct term we want to call it these days it seems like it changes every couple of days which i think is part of our uncomfortability with it as a as a culture that we're trying to find the term that we can pay attention to it, but also not be as dark as it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's assault. And in this particular case, the actress that plays Hot Lips Ahulahan, when she is naked, they are doing that take when the shower is is um, ripped up so that she's revealed. She kept dropping to the ground too quickly. And the director, Robert Altman, wasn't satisfied with that. In order to get her to stay surprised longer, to be more genuine, they had, I think, two of the lead actors. I'm not sure if it were um, Sutherland and Duvall, maybe, just be there naked also. So now you've got <laughs> even further sexual misconduct in order to get the more authentic reaction. So, Ethan, I want to back up a moment. Robert Altman directed this film. He directed another film on the top 100 we have watched not too long ago, and that was Nashville. Ah, uh, yes. 
I liked this a hell of a lot better than Nashville. I agree, but if you recall, Nashville also had some things about women that were maybe not great. Mm, yeah. But this film was based on a book. And, of course, everyone, I think, knows about the TV show. And yes. so we've got a lot of similarities to other films on the list. So I don't think it's so crazy that it's included here. And, well, maybe I'll reserve some of my judgments for later. Why don't we turn first to our pivotal scene? Let's do it. What do you got for me? So this is kind of difficult to nail down in a film like this because this film feels episodic, which I think lent itself very easily into converting it into a TV show. Mm -hmm. Because in your synopsis, we've got the painless episode. We've got the Japan trip. We've got the football game. All of these are really disconnected. And so... Great for TV show, maybe bad for picking a pivotal scene. So yeah. I chose what I took to be the film just trying to be upfront with you with what it's trying to say. And that happens in the first fourth where Houlihan has just come into the camp and she's talking to Hawkeye and he's telling her how much of an idiot Frank Burns is. And of course, she being a straight-laced army person, which is treated as bad in this film. <laughs> Yeah, so let's just play it. It's very short, and then we'll come back. Well, Major Burns is far from satisfied. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Frank Burns does not know his way around an operating theater. He does not know his way around a body. And if you will have observed anything, you will have observed that Major Frank Burns is an idiot. He has flipped his wig that he's out of his head, that he's a lousy surgeon. Oh, on the contrary, I have observed that Major Burns is not only a good technical surgeon, he is a good military surgeon. Finished? I've also noticed that nurses as well as enlisted men address you as Hawkeye. Yeah, because that's my name, Hawkeye Pierce. Well, that kind of informality is inconsistent with maximum efficiency in a military oh, organization. come off it, Major. You put me right off my fresh fried lobster. Do you realize that? I'm going to go back to my bed. I'm going to put away the best part of a bottle of scotch. And under normal circumstances, you being normally what I would call a very attractive woman, I would have invited you back to share my little bed with me, and you might possibly have come. But you really put me off. I mean, you're what we call a regular army clown. I wonder how a degenerated person like that could have reached a position of responsibility in the Army Medical Corps. He was drafted. The final line of that scene, which I think perfectly encapsulates what's going on here, is given by, was it Dago Red, the the the, preach, the preacher, the, the pastor, the father, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call him. Um, she says, how did someone such a degenerate, you know, get so high in the medical army corps? And his quick response is, he was drafted. <laughs> this is going on during the height of the Vietnam War, right? So... The filming of this using the draft through its close, let's call it cousin, the Korean War, you get the anti-war sentiment that this film is offering, but with the plausible deniability of it being set in the 50s, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think I read somewhere they tried to write Korea as often as they could in the film so that (laughs) you wouldn't mistake it as Vietnam. Which, I mean, geographically much closer than a lot of other wars that the United States have had in the past. Mm-hmm. And they really wanted to dissociate, uh, I guess ostensibly dissociate, from the Vietnam thing. But obviously, they're calling it right out. 
which is why at the very beginning when you have Hawkeye taking his bag and he's marching forward and the brass is playing and they're saying, you know, meanwhile in Korea or later on in Korea, they're making it very clear it's Korea. Mm-hmm. But I also thought it was interesting that you've got this loud symphonic brass section and an opening crawl, which kind of anticipates Star Wars. That You're right. It, it is kind of strange. I definitely noticed that. So I think uh, George Lucas, again, stole something from somewhere, as he is wont to do, and uh, took a loud brass section and did an opening crawl. But his was serious, whereas the opening crawl of MASH is, is mock serious. It's mock heroic. Right, right. So ultimately, Ethan, if I can give you my thesis, I think this film is pretty upfront with its anti-war sentiment, no matter what kind of minor sleight of hand it tries to do to convince you otherwise and makes use of what I guess we'll call crass farce in satire, you know, a la our conversation about the plurability of treatment of women and sexual harassment in this film mm-hmm. to convince its viewer of the pointlessness of war. And all that pointlessness is wrapped up in a variety of techniques, you know, the episodic nature of it, just meaning, you know, same shit, different day, but also the fact that all the characters talk over one another, which apparently mm-hmm. Robert Altman popularized. It wasn't really used beforehand. I think all of these really make its case very well. And I think that's why it's on the list. But I still think it is a lot to ask of a 2018 viewer to sit through some of the things that we are, I wouldn't say sensitive because I think we're right to, to call these things out. But let's say very attuned to. And this this film really does play like a long television episode um as as you pointed out you know this does translate very well into television and it's it's obvious why um you know as you pointed out it's got these little episodes that happen within it and you know what's the difference between a two-hour version of that and a you know 30-minute version of that uh there you go. Um, but I'm with you on this film, you know, it, about being, uh, you know, about the sort of pointlessness of war, right? It It's something that uninterested men are drafted into with no clear reason. We're never given a reason for the Korean War. I mean, they don't discuss it, right? Um, they have no direction. <laughs> they don't really have any desire to do anything, um, it, it's really just sort of a meaningless conflict that they're detached from, um, and, you know, it is broken up by episodes of like fun and games. The, it's a, this is a war movie ostensibly that ends with like a 40 minute football game. <laughs> well, you know? it's a war movie, but there are no combat scenes the only gunshot nope. you hear is the pistol for the end of the quarter in the football game in the football game. So it's it's really strange because there is not a single character that is invested in winning the war. Even no. people like Frank Burns and Hot Lips are there to be rule followers because mm-hmm. the rules are the rules and they are detached or dissociated from the actual conflict itself. So no one in this film represents a side that is there for the war, right? Everyone's in their own little dominions. Everyone's in their own little tyrannies and trying to you know, do what they think is best for them and then get home out of this, what they would take as a hellhole. Yeah. I mean, they, they've turned it into, into a fraternity. 
that they're if they're gonna you know if they're stuck there they're gonna have fun you know um or at least try to so ethan i think it's unavoidable that we talk about the television show some more in conjunction with this film i think we could pretty easily see why it was made a television show after this but i think there were some interesting choices made in between, right? It's only a two years difference between the TV show and the film, but they dropped some things or they freshen up some other things like Frank Burns is a large part of the TV show. Whereas the film gets rid of him in a straight jacket, like 50 minutes in something like that. <laughs> yeah. But I also think that the character of Duke, which is prominent throughout the film, I don't recall him being anywhere in the TV show. And I think that's because he's perhaps the most unlikable of the frat boy type members of the, the swamp, right? Their little, little Mm -hmm. drinking coterie. Right. I think he's the worst to the women. He doesn't really have any wit or charm like Hawkeye or Trapper. Right. And I'm really kind of confused as to why he's in the film at all, I guess. Well, I mean, he was in the book probably (laughs) is it just to take a bite at southerners because he's the one southerner and the other two are yankees i guess but i don't know that that's even played to any i mean i wouldn't have known he was a southerner if he didn't have a line about being a southerner because his accent's really not one of the south no it you know he could have taken southern accent lessons from uh Oscar Isaac <laughs> from that last movie we watched. Ethan's bringing up our last bonus episode of Annihilation where Oscar Isaac affects a Southern accent sometimes very unsuccessfully. He kind of sounds like this. Like it's uh, it's kind of in and out. <laughs> it, it comes and goes as, as we see. So if you're interested in that, you should think about becoming a Patreon supporter. Ethan, let's move on to our three questions. Yes, let's. Do we care about this film? Yeah, I think we have to. The show ran for like 300,000 years. I think that this really helps set the tone in the 70s. And it's, at least in the 70s for film, right? We definitely see this disillusionment. And this is pretty early on in the in the 70s. So um, I think it helps set a tone. It's got, there are lots of things I think that we'll be able to say that we owe to it. And I think it's a I think it's a cultural touchstone in a lot of ways because it does sort of spawn uh, a little uh, you know a little mini media empire. Ethan, imagine for a second that the show never existed. Do you care about this film? Yeah, I think so. I think that at least in in terms of uh, war movies, there's a lot that seems to come out of this. Um, and I think that it's a pretty scathing and, and, you know, sexism aside, it, it does have its moments. It's a funny film. For my part, I am very nostalgic about the TV show. Actually, after finishing this film, I started looking around trying to find where I could watch MASH because apparently it's not on streaming legally anywhere. Or I found something that was put up and seemed to be legit but everything was reversed, so that was a little uh, uncanny, and I couldn't quite get used to that. But I watched a lot of the show as a kid growing up, and for me, if the show had never existed, and I, you asked me if I wanted to still care about this film, it'd be hard for me to answer that in the affirmative, because we have other things that that do similar 
we have other films that do similar things as this one, right? It was this came out the same year as Catch Twenty Two, and of mm-hmm. course, this film was more successful than Catch Twenty Two. But in a world that this doesn't exist, I don't know if Catch Twenty Two doesn't do the same things as effectively. Like, I'm not sure this is essential necessarily to a list like this. Hmm. And I think the film itself doesn't do a whole lot in terms of letting us know something about the war film. Maybe I'll be proved wrong when we think more deeply about our second question. So why don't we go straight to that? Yes. So what do we owe to this film? Well, I mean, I I think that there's a sort of tone um, in military films or or a you know a sort of set of characters within military films that we can probably trace back to this this is such an irreverent take on it um as we pointed out it's kind of a war movie without war uh really it the war is sort of a a a backdrop for bad behavior um or for nihilistic behavior and i think that we continue to see that um, and not to say that this is perhaps the only progenitor, uh, but I, again, I think it's a cultural touchstone um, and spawns this television show that just continues the madness and becomes a sort of cultural touchstone. I've said that seven times. <laughs> I've been thinking about some of the films that we've watched that are war movies on the list or as a part of our bonus episodes. I'm thinking specifically of Platoon. I don't really mm-hmm. see this in platoon i don't see the same kind of irreverence i see more the marx brothers in this film than anything else yeah Yeah. but you just know like saving private ryan is pretty serious to its core so that's not really what's happening here either well that's world war ii of course all wars are serious ethan (laughs) like i don't think there's a inherently more serious war than the others no, but I but I do see a little bit of this in something like Platoon, uh, it, this sort of disdain for the war. I mean, this is, even though, like you said, even though it's ostensibly set in Korea, it, this is really about Vietnam. And so, you know, it, it just seems to me the some sort of Vietnam zeitgeist. And I think that it, you know, the, the timing is important that it comes out in 70 and, and lets it be let you know the anti-war sentiment is mounting regardless so i was also going to say that i think even war machine as satirical as that film is which is the brad pitt netflix film we watched maybe a couple months back i don't really see that as characterized in the same way so i really i really feel like this hasn't influenced war films necessarily but i definitely think it has influenced comedy or dark comedy and yeah. certainly satire or farce. Yeah, I mean, the war, aside from the fact that this is kind of saying the w- war is stupid, um, the war ends up being really just a sort of setting or backdrop um, to to nihilism. I mean, I think there's a lot of nihilism in this film. and irre- I mean, I think it's an irreverent, nihilistic film, and that's what's going on, you know? So I think there's something to be learned from this film. I just don't think we can link it up so easily to the war film specifically. And I think it's roots or it has roots or other films today, the dark comedies, black comedies have roots in this film, or at least uh, have a branch or something in it to continue the metaphor. Fair, Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe you're right. 
I guess I just like to make sweeping generalizations about war movies. Yeah, I can see you here on our Skype video call that we're definitely doing, and you're just sweeping your hand across the screen screen every time you say something. You just point all across the room and trying to encompass everything. Yes, it's what I'm good at. <laughs> Let's turn to our, our third question. Does it hold up? We've already begun to answer this question. It's gender politics do not hold up. It's gender politics are very uncomfortable to watch. So in that case, no. Also, in terms of its... So, I mean, I had I had trouble getting through the whole thing. I didn't do it in one sitting. I had to do it in a couple of sittings because it's like a TV show. It's like watching two hours of The Office as one story or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or just watching or watching two hours of MASH on TV, which, you know, on TV you have commercial breaks and you can get up and pee. I don't know. Um, so I think that, you know, this is kind of set up in a way that uh, might be a little bit of a challenge for a newer audience. That being said, there there are some funny things that happen in this film. You know, this film is funny when it's not being terribly, terribly sexist and making you very uncomfortable. So, Ethan, I have some thoughts about whether or not it holds up, but I want to press you a little bit further on what you found funny in this film because, personally, I didn't find any moments where I thought, oh, that was funny or, you know, not even kind of a chuckle. So... So what's what's doing the humor for you here? Well, I guess it's it's the pitting of I I thought some of the stuff with Frank and uh, Hawkeye were you know I I got a couple of laughs out of that and their incessant desire for um, golfing I thought that was kind of funny and their poor the poor Korean boy who they've got as a essentially they're like waiter yeah the manservant hojan the first thing they do to him you know they they see he's learning english with the bible and they give him a playboy they're like this will help you read and he's like i gotta go (laughs) i thought that was funny i mean there are moments like that 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 got a chuckle from me i don't know that i was splitting my sides watching this film I think all the Frank Byrne stuff I didn't find to be very funny, if only because Robert Duvall is such a deadly serious actor to me (laughs) that it didn't play like, I don't know his name, the actor who plays Frank Burns in the TV show, far more slapsticky comedy, right? And I also think Donald Sutherland as Hawkeye is pretty good, but Alan Alda as Hawkeye very much channeling Groucho Marx with his quips and wit. I think it's far yeah. more successful than the kind of more muted, demure Hawkeye of this film. Yeah, I mean, I think we can probably both agree that this this film works better as a television show. The television show, I think, is better than the film. I also think you're right about the gender politics, but I think gender politics is maybe too light of a term for this. I think the ways in which gender is handled maybe altogether is pretty bad right because you've got painless afraid that he has become as he calls it a fairy which is not the most offensive term i can think of one more offensive than that but it's also not a great term and the fact that you view homosexuality as catching or something you've just picked up right it's a curse that you have to bear now and and the answer is suicide right yep (laughs) like what and the great tragedy he's got this massive penis and it, it all he's gay now so what good is it right yeah 
that and all the sexual harassment, assaults, misconduct, whatever you want to call it, against women that's perpetrated against women in this film, pretty dang bad. And it makes it hard for me to sit through it. I, I definitely felt uncomfortable as a, a viewer in 2018, as I think most people would be. I mean, this, it, a lot of that stuff is what, you know, uh, only a few years ago you might call uh, locker room talk or boys being boys, right? Which has very swiftly been exposed for what it is, um, which is abuse almost always, uh, harassment. Uh, so that stuff is tricky to watch unless you know you're really invested in i don't know the good old boys club uh it's hard to watch it's also just occurred to me now that we can see a pretty clear lineage between a film like this and those late 90s early 2000s run of national lampoon films yeah with all of their sort of despicability which you know I'm, i'm i'm definitely coloring this conversation with my personal feelings about it, but I, I think it's fair to say that these aren't good films for views on women or gender. No. And I think, well, you, you get that at least. So I don't particularly think this film holds up, but like we mentioned earlier in the episode, I think we can see where it makes itself known on the list. Basically, it has a, it's situated in a certain way, right? It It is an anti-war film that is filmed during the Vietnam War, talking ostensibly about the Korean War, but makes its case through this kind of despicability. So even though I think it's intentional, I don't think that excuses it. And I think it does make it difficult to watch in 2018, but I can see why they made the choices that they did. Yeah, yeah. In that sort of (laughs) uplifting note, (laughs) I think we'll wrap this episode up, fade into the scenery. And speaking of fading into the scenery... Ethan, do you know our next film on AFI's Top 100 list? Tell me what it is, Matt. The Deer Hunter. Ah, The Deer Hunter. Another uh, war film, correct? I have no idea. It's a film I haven't seen, so fading into the scenery, I don't know if that's an accurate segue at all. <laughs> well, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I think it's I think it's Vietnam PTSD or Korea PTSD. There's murder, I think. This is the Russian roulette. Russian roulette. Well, there's, there's kind of a little string of, of war film or war-related films here because we've got this and we've got Taxi Driver. Incidentally, mm-hmm. both are De Niro films. But until then, I've been Matt Pazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Oh, Matt. Matt, my spoilers are hot. Kiss my s- hot spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Pazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Pazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. And you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.